so the maintenance guy gets here. He's like, oh, no, I have to cut off your water. And comes over, and he's like, Milena, do you know where the... Uh, like the water shutoff is. It's my podcast closet. The closet he needs is my podcast <gasps> closet. Oh no. Yeah. And I like go into the closet, disappear, and I come back with like foam and a stained glass pig and like a microphone and a chair. The, his face, like he already, like this is the same guy who almost got killed by my dog, uh, had a moment on my fitness pole, when he knows that he comes into my apartment, there is not one dull moment. Not I can one. just imagine, like, standing there holding your pig and then looking at your other closet door right there going, uh, what's in that one? <laughs> How many closets do you have in this place? <laughs> Five. <laughs> no, we have, we have four. You, no, you technically have five. You have actually one in the kitchen. You have one by the front door. You have on the other side of the front door. And then you have one by your bedroom door. And then you have another one by that one by your front door. I love how you know exactly how many closets I have. You have a ridiculous amount of closets. <laughs> I need storage space. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures and the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to learn about a bad girl of science and a badass artist who fought the Nazis. Megan won't tell me about her artist. That's all I know about her. I, it's a surprise. You're going to have to wait. I guess we're all going to be on this roller coaster together. We are. I thought about it. And I was like, well, maybe at the very end you could record after the surprise is over. But then you'd ruin the surprise for everyone else. You'll have to hold out. But in the meanwhile, tell me about this bad girl of science, this bad woman. Okay. So she was considered the first computer programmer ever. And she was born in 1815. What? We are going back in time. Way back, guys. <laughs> Her name is Ada Lovelace. Also, I mean, she's got like a whole like bunch of names, but she was born Augusta Ada Byron on December 10th in 1815. Her father was Lord Byron, so he's considered one of the greatest English poets. Uh, and her mom was Annabella Milbanke or Milbank? Mm -hmm. Milbank. She was an heiress. So Lord Byron, her father, was a poet. He was erratic. He had a lot of affairs. He had a few illeg illegitimate children. One of them was with his own sister. Oh, shit. Yeah. The marriage was awful, and he was awful, and he was crazy. He he was considered the bad boy poet of the 1800s. Like, yeah. He sounds like an asshole poet of the 1800s. He, he was an asshole poet. Yeah. The wife, Annabella, assumed he was insane. And moved forward for, like, a separation after a month of Ada being born. It was such an intense scandal that when Ada was five months old, her dad, like, peaced out of England to never be seen by either of the two again because it was too much for him to handle. So he bounced around Europe, but he kept tabs on his daughter. I think this is more just, like, a publicity stunt for him anyway. He wrote a poem about her, about Ada, the daughter he, like, didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's all I'm really going to tell you about him. But if you want to know more, you, you can listen to another podcast because he was an awful human being. I mean, it, that impacts someone growing up and that's relevant yeah. to you it, know who they become. It definitely impacted Ada because she was still obsessed with her dad 
And, like, think about it. You know, your dad's, like, a famous poet that you've never really, like, met or known. Your mom is telling you that he was a horrible human being and you hear all the scandal. You also are, like, idolizing him because he's, like, a rock star. Mm-hmm. It was a lot. Not only was it, why did dad leave? She did not have a very good relationship with her mother. Oh, that's yeah. tough. It was not a warm and fuzzy relationship by any means. So mm-hmm. to avoid her daughter from inheriting the insanity that she was convinced her dad had, which is basically just like the brain of like an artist and like how sometimes they can be. I'm talking about the ones who like have shit work, but think their work is amazing. Who have shit personalities. Yes, have shit personalities. Okay, uh, I'm not going to mention any names. Picasso. But. (laughs) Like those things. And of course, they're like, they're, you know, being inflated by, oh, they're a genius. And of course, they go from there. So they think everything they do is like amazing. And they're like supposed to be like a lover and like be free spirit. But they use their, I'm an artist and need to be free spirit to do shitty things. Like that kind of artist. I feel like that's that's much more a personality type for someone who falls into power or who's able to come into power. You see that in business and finance, um, yeah. you know, in science and art. It, I mean, that unfortunately is not limited yeah. to any particular endeavor. But in her mind, that's what it was. So she wanted to work that artsy brain out of her daughter, anything that could have been from her father out of her daughter. And she hired tutors Mm -hmm. and encouraged studies in like math and science. So Ada loved math and science. So it worked. But her mom also didn't really care enough beyond that. And I'm not really sure why. I didn't really get why she wasn't like a super warm and fuzzy mom. But she would sometimes leave Ada with the grandmother, her mom, instead of taking care of her. And then to like keep up appearances, she would write to her mother about, oh, how's my daughter doing? But write a letter that was on top of that, that was like, keep these in case I need to keep up appearances and people question my affection for my daughter. I need to keep up appearances as a single mom because what would society think? Detachment between a parent and a child was really normal. It's crazy. I don't understand. It was a totally different set of circumstances to what we're used to now that today it seems very cold. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure the additional factor of her being a single mother, she kind of had to, you know, navigate that additional layer of expectation. No. The, the only two things she was concerned about with her daughter is that she didn't have basically Lord Byron's, what she would call insanity, and that she kept up social pretenses. So she also had her friends keep tabs on Ada. So anytime she was going to do something scandalous or immoral, like she had her friends reach out to her. It was like a group of women that Ada would call like the harpies. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Who would just keep an eye on her the entire time as she was growing up, just making sure that she didn't do the same stuff that like her father did. Which for a good chunk of her childhood, she couldn't because she was always pretty sick. She was often confined to bed rest. It was like a lot of migraines from what I understand because it it, they, like, affected her eyesight. So I'm assuming these are, like, medical-grade migraines. Okay. But it's in the 1800s, so who knows that? And then there were some measles. There's, like, a bout of measles in 1829 that actually paralyzed her. Oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, she was able, after, like, by 1931 to be, like, on crutches, and she was recovering. Okay. But 
she was in her bed for a while, like yeah. for most of her childhood. So that gave her plenty of time to study her math and her science. And uh, she even had time to conceptualize like a flying machine at the age of 12. Nice. She like studied bird anatomy and just sketched it out and like wrote to her mother about it. But she eventually got out of bed rest and she was not wasting any time. How old was she when she was out of bed rest? She was 18. Okay. And she ended up having an affair with one of her tutors. So on some of the people that have researched, uh, mm-hmm. wealthier families, you know, will provide tutors for their children. And typically for their daughters, it's all women tutors. This was not a woman tutor. That's what I figured. Yeah, like those family, they know what's up. They're like, mm, no, thank you. She had she had a few women tutors. It wasn't just him, but like mama found out eventually and they had to cover it up. But I mean, she was young. She was considered charming and slender and intelligent. She was very popular. She came out to society. A lot of men were trying to court her. Mm -hmm. She made a bunch of friends. All of them are male in the 1800s. I mean, when you've been essentially trapped in your bed your entire childhood, I'm sure it's nice to go out and get a little bit of attention, make some friends. Absolutely. Some of her friends included Andrew Cross, who dealt with electricity, Sir David Brewster, who dealt with physical optics, Charles Wheatstone, who invented the stethoscope, Michael Faraday, who dealt with electromagnetism and electrotherapy. I know that name. You do know that name. Yeah. And then Charles Dickens, because why not? But... The one that mattered, it wasn't just like, ooh, attention, but it was like a real friend. She Mm -hmm. met a Charles Babbage in 1833 uh, through her new tutor, Mary (laughs) Somerville. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So Mary Somerville was like talking to her about her friend Charles and talking about Charles's work. And Ada was enthralled. She was fascinated. Um, They eventually became the best of friends. And they were best friends because when she met him, the mention of his difference engine happened. And she was just, yes, tell me about this. I want to know more about this. I have no idea what that means. So it was an automated machine that Babbage invented that tabulated polynomial functions. So it did math. And it was powered by a cranking handle and cogs. So I already can't fathom how electricity through a bunch of wires lets me type notes on my computer or, like, make sure that my sim doesn't die. Priorities. Priorities. I literally cannot fathom how mechanical cogs can compute polynomials. I won't be able to fathom it unless I was, like, actually physically in front of the machine and seeing it work because I'm a visual learner. Yeah. Or if I saw it on, like, YouTube or something. I was honestly too damn lazy to look for a YouTube video. Well, at least you're honest. (laughs) I'm very. (laughs) Yeah, but like Ada was into it, right? And she would like push to talk to him and learn with him and go back and forth and like pick his brain. And they actually would walk, like take walks and just talk about math. Oh, how romantic. Oh, God. (laughs) Just bleh just awful i'm already nauseous and he loved that he loved the company of this brilliant mind uh he loved being able to bounce ideas off of it and he actually referred to her as the enchantress of numbers not a bad pet name no but there's just a bunch of dorks yeah uh but from what i understand it was only a friendship nice yeah it's great especially With Ada being so boy crazy, I cannot judge because when I was that age, I was the same. Oh, you were nothing like that. Oh, no? 
Now, you were so focused on your um, confirmation studies, really, really diligent for trig. Um, what else? Uh, quite a studious journalist, journalism student. Definitely no under the bleacher liaisons and underage drinking with SoCo. It was never under the bleachers, thank you. Anyway, <laughs> like myself, young Ada was not devoid of scandal by any means. So first off, the amount of male friends she had involved mm-hmm. meant there was a lot of gossip because women just didn't have that many male friends. And then there was the time she tried to come up with a foolproof betting algorithm while betting on horses. Shit. Okay. All right. She had all these friends and she ended up falling into the gambling scene and she became addicted to gambling and she thought she was great at numbers. So she worked on this algorithm and she lost 3,000 pounds to the horses. What's that with inflation? 300,216 pounds and 22 cents. If I had gone to vet school, that would have been my college loan amount. Oof. (laughs) All is good, though, (laughs) because around 1835, she would later marry a William, 8th Baron King, and become, wait for it, Lady King. Ooh, that's so fancy. And they had three children together, so they had Byron, Anna Isabella, and Ralph Gordon, and I'm kidding you. <laughs> right? Okay. What did you which, think of when you heard that? Because literally, which, I have parentheses right after Ralph Gordon, and it's in all caps Ralph, ah, Savior of the Universe. <laughs> Fucking love Flash Gordon. I'm such a sucker for 70s and 80s sci fi films, they're great. <laughs> Have you seen Zardoff with Sean Connery in a thong? Oh, perfection. It's It was a crazy time. But, (laughs) I mean, geez, out of those three names, one of them doesn't quite fit. (laughs) Ralph Ralph Gordon. (laughs) But, yeah, so when she lost the money, she basically pawned the family's diamonds of her husband, the Lovelace's family, because she wasn't originally lovely. She married into the Lovelace family, and then she took their diamonds, and pawned them so she could pay off her debts. Well, that'll piss off a lot of people, a lot of your in-laws. Oh, wait for it. It gets better. Oh, my goodness. Okay. But we're going to switch back to Babbage and Ada for a second because this is where we're going to actually get to her contribution to science. And we're not just talking about some lady who has a gambling problem. Uh, (laughs) This is great. This is a great ride. Today's an interesting one. So Babbage was moving from the difference engines to analytical engines. Basically, while the difference engine could only add, the analytical engine could add, subtract, divide, and multiply. Fancy. Right? So really what it did was explain what algorithmic efficiency would do for society as a whole. So if people knew a machine like that could exist, it would guide the progression of math and science. So, like, in what way could we make these results produce faster? Babbage was not able to make the said engine because he fought with his engineer and they lost government funding. And then okay. he, like, died before it was finally finished. Well, but he, that'll, um, that'll kind of put a chill on things. Yeah. Um, 
needless to say, we bypassed that particular technology with silicon, so we don't need to build it. But from what I understand, Babbage had given a lecture on the machine, and an Italian engineer named Luigi Federico Menebrea wrote the lecture down in Italian. And then Charles Wheatstone, one of Ada's friends, had asked Ada to translate it back to English. And Ada was like, okay, I got this. I got to turn it into English. She did it. It took her a year, and it didn't take her just a year to translate it, but she added her own notes. Oh, nice. Okay. She numbered, numbered with quotes. She didn't number them, but she made them notes A through G. Okay. These notes are what make her famous and what make people consider her to be the world's first computer programmer. They were three times longer than the original article. She put some elbow grease into it. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Note A. Distinguish the difference between the difference engine and the analytical engine. Note G, painstaking detail. Explained a method for using the machine to calculate a sequence of Bernoulli numbers. Bernoulli? I should look up how to say this. So, Wiki tells me that these numbers are a sequence of rational numbers which occur frequently in number theory. So, I have zero desire to explain any of that. Thank God I love you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I'm actually not qualified for that. And all you really need to know is there's a handwritten formula for those mathematically inclined to plug in numbers, do the math, and get the value. So the algorithm she wrote would do the equation for you so you don't have to. So the machine does it for you. Mm -hmm. And this was the first, considered the first published algorithm specifically tailored for a computer. So she wrote the first computer algorithm. I honestly imagine this just being that moment where she was just lazy and decided that she hated that particular formula, or maybe she was just really bad at it. So she, like, came up with a way to never do it again. I like it. (laughs) And I will, whatever I'm doing, I will openly say I am a lazy bastard sometimes, which means whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm doing, I want to do in the most efficient manner possible. And, like, that's what computers are for. And she saw the promise of these particular machines. And she was like, we're going to use these for everything. Yeah, if that can make your life easier and more efficient, go for it. She went on to say that the analytical machine could solve any complex problem, not just problems with numbers. So she basically told the world that one could potentially use the machine to create music. And this was obviously unheard of because it was, like, the 1840s. But... Like, that happens now. We make music with machines all the time. Yeah, and we can put them in our pockets so we can pull them out and look at cat videos on them. That's pretty great. Um, And then, as if that wasn't enough, she decided to also just write about her dismissal of artificial intelligence. Well, I mean, she's, she's really laying down the law on something that has not even come into its own. I know. She was like, a machine can only tell it or it can only do what we tell it to do. It can't just make things up. Oh, just wait. <laughs> so obviously this mind was brilliant, but it, the brilliant mind did not last long. I mean, what? Those who burn brightest burn the shortest. Um, she went out with a bang. So you remember those diamonds I mentioned earlier? Oh, no. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that she pawned. She didn't just use them to pay off her own debts. Andrew Cross, her friend, do you remember the one who dealt with electricity? Uh-huh. He had a son named John. Okay. And John was also an avid gambler and also lost. Uh, so she decided to help him get out of debt. Okay. <laughs> and why, class, did she use her husband's family's jewels to get this random kid out of debt? 
they were boning. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what was their age difference? Because I imagine she's got a few years on him, but I'm just a little curious as to... Mm, I mean, she died at 36, so I don't know. Even if it was 18, that's still not that bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of parents of 18-year-olds would be like, um, sorry, how old are they? <laughs> oh, almost two decades older than you. Oh, great. Great. Yeah, oh, this will end well. It's not like she was, like, 60. She died real young. Well, I just, I just wonder if it's weird, because if it's, like, if that was her friend, like, how much older was her friend? And then, like, she legit could have potentially seen this kid grow up. It, it gets worse. Oh, no. <laughs> so... Uh, her husband didn't know about any of this, including her getting herself out of gambling, until she was on her deathbed. What was she dying from? So she died in 1952 from uterine cancer. So, sp- uh. yeah, spay and neuter your Ada Lovelace's, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Um, but yeah, he didn't know about her or John, but. She was also like, I had an affair with John, so there's that. And he abandoned her on her deathbed and was like, fuck you. Uh, and that's okay because all of her estate went to John Cross. What? The, the guy she was having an affair with? All of it, yep. Okay. yep. okay, but to be fair, I guess whatever she had potentially carried over from her mother's side. Can I imagine everything on her husband's side? It's in his name. I mean, probably. I I mean, it's not like like her mom was also an heiress, so. I I mean, we've we've covered one of them before, and that family had a stupid amount of money. Yeah, so I'm sure she didn't just leave them with like a few hundred bucks. Yeah, you know what I mean, mean? like a few hundred million by today's rates. (laughs) Well, not if she gambled it all away. uh, It was I don't know, man. It was just a crazy ride, crazy thirty six years. So like. She was a bad girl, just like her dad. And I feel like she felt some sort of connection with her dad this entire time. Because mm-hmm. when Ada was eight years old, her dad had passed away at the age of 36 as well. He did it like fighting in the Greek War of Independence. Okay. I, don't, I don't know how that or why he was in the Greek War of Independence, but that's how that happened. Hey, if we had a Milana's Miscellaneous My Favorite Feminist Facts segment, <laughs> eh, there you I, go. You can tell us all about it. It would it would not be about Lord fucking Byron, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you need to tell us how he died. Oh, hopefully violently. Okay. Um, but I mean, she obviously didn't feel that way at all because she asked to be buried right next to her father, like after never meeting him. So yeah. that was there are some things, some parallels, some crazy rides, but she came up with some amazing mathematical algorithms and we salute her now her contributions were they recognized when she released those translated notes was it immediate or was it something like after the fact decades where people were able to look back and realize the significance of her work there was like a fight between her and babbage and the engineer about whether or not she should be a part of it or not oh i didn't even think about that yeah especially if she's building on their work while they're both still living and working she eventually was put on with it like they were all published together okay i mean yeah people people knew she was pretty smart so that's cool Mm -hmm. yeah so that's all i got for you it was a short ride but but i know properly someone asked me 
I'll be like, sit down and let me tell you about Lord Byron being a butthole and his daughter who died the same age that he did. It's very weird. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I'm sure her mom was like, okay, great. Did she pass away before her mom did? Mom passed eight years after. Oh, okay. See, that even makes it weirder. Like, to have the relationship with your husband go to absolute hell and then try to get your daughter through it to not make the mistakes that he has. I mean, to live to see her die too. It's bad. Yeah. But, you know, you got to let your daughter live their life, right? That's family. Yeah, some people just... Unfortunately, don't make the best decisions as much as you love them and you don't want them to. So yeah, I, I don't disagree with you on Ada being a badass. I will propose that who I'm doing is a more fun badass. I need to know more. I know. I'm kind of excited. All right. First off, what kind of artist? I hate when you keep secrets from me, Megan. I I don't usually keep. I'm a terrible liar. I'm bad at fibbing. No, you you really are. I a really am. Liar. <laughs> You're the worst. Oh, my God. Okay, so this brings me back to that time you told me that you broke up with Josh. And you were like, I kissed another guy. And I was like, who is it? And you're like, no one. And I was like, who is it? And you're like, you don't know him. But I knew because you are a horrible liar and I mean, you have not gotten better. No, I. that's not something I want to get better at. And in case, in case you're wondering, the person that she kissed... When she was in a relationship with somebody else, was my brother. Way to throw me under the bus. (laughs) We have been together for 10 happy years. Thank you very much. Uh, I still think it's hilarious every time I tell the story of like, she tried really hard not to tell me, but I knew. And I was, there was a point where I was just, I was just so amused with how hard you were trying to dance around it. It was great. Well, like I said. 10 years going, and we're having a lovely <laughs> garlic chicken tonight and a soy marinade. <laughs> you so two are made there. for each other. <laughs> It'll bother him because you've said way too much, even in the general <laughs> direction of him. So yeah, not a good fibber. So that's why I'm going to tell you, I am not doing a visual artist today. What? Yeah, I'm not what? doing... We'll just just hold on to your horsies. I'm not doing a sculptor. I'm oh not my doing god. a painter. Oh my god. I'm also not doing a musician or a poet uh, or a dancer. What? I'll get to those. I'll get to them. What? I'm doing a woman who saved artists from Nazi pieces of shit. Oh my god. I knew that you would uh, really hate it when I got there. I'm I'm a little disappointed, but also I need to know more. So I will get to performing arts and I will get to, you know, people who do creative communication arts. Like that's, yeah, not going to deny the contributions people have made outside of visual arts in the arts. But what little I came across for this woman, I was like, holy moly, I need to know more because this is crazy. So what she did, I think I'm thrown out as badass. And I was like, I have to cover her because she saved so many lives because of her work. What's her name? Yeah. All right. So we're covering Lisa Fritko, a Jewish anti-fascist resistance activist, a.k.a. a pretty badass woman. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. Buckle in. Okay. So we're going a little heavy on history, but I'll be gentle. All right. I promise. Not going to get too stuck on anything in particular, but there's a lot of context to what's going on. Uh, But first, Lisa, she was born not in 1815. Like, your Ada Lovelace. Um, she was born almost 100 years later in 1909. Oh, cool. 
Yeah, and I feel like this is the third person that I've covered who has been born in either 1908 or 1909. So I'll be looking to find something a little different next time. But uh, she was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which, you know, Central Europe, into a liberal Jewish family. Her dad, he was a socialist and an author of an anti-fascist newspaper. So growing up, Lisa, she was exposed to some pretty strong liberal ideas and you know, later on, it's really evident just how much it impacted her. Now, after World War One in 1918, uh, Lisa's 11 and her family settles in Berlin, which compared to the collapsing empire that they left behind, uh, the new post-World War II German government offers a fairly bit more security. Now, for Lisa, coming of age in 1920s Germany, things were not ideal because of Nazis. They kind of tend to ruin everything. Every single thing. Now, post-World War I, Germany's not doing so hot. They've got a new government, there's crippling hyperinflation, and that leads to the Great Depression, which is independent, but in the spirit of the American Great Depression. Now, with all this financial instability, you know, there's political instability. Uh, You've got a middle class taking the brunt of the Depression, you've got hostility towards government leaders, and then all of a sudden, by that not so sudden, because the shit had been coming for years, there's this new political party that has all the answers. I mean, they're advocating nationalism, they found the cause of all the Germans' ills, and they alone can fix Germany. Okay. (laughs) Ugh, that doesn't sound familiar at all. Oh my god, it has been kind of terrifying reading her first count, her first-hand account of what was going on, and then all the contextual research to go with it, because mm-hmm. there are so many similarities. I've just been turning to my partner and be like, no, seriously, like, I might be able to get into grad school in Canada. That'll be our out. You can get a job there. Like, we'll be good. Let's just leave the country. Just be like, peace out. We're gone. It's been kind of terrifying. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. But, I mean, so on her end, we've got Adolf Hitler, you know, leading the charge. 1932, she's 23. The National Socialist German Workers' Party, or the Nazis as we know them, uh, they become the largest party in parliament. Oh. Yeah, I, again, well, it's a bit of a doozy with what's going on today. Hitler further rises to power a year later as chancellor, and that's where he assumes dictatorship because with his majority rule, he's able to pass legislation that gives him unchecked powers. No. Yeah, it's, it's some spooky stuff. It was called the Enabling Act. For those of you who may or may not be curious, now you know. So it's 1933, Lisa's 24, the Nazis are taking over, and Lisa, she says, screw that. She's active in the Berlin Socialist Student League. Uh, Lisa, along with other members, they try to subvert the fascist rule. And one thing they did was they held up in the small room, and her and her crew were publishing anti-Nazi leaflets and distributing them around Berlin. Very cool. Yeah. Well, they had to hide the sound of the typewriter as they were creating these things. So they would blare classical music. (laughs) So you couldn't hear it. Um, And I mean, for those resisting Hitler's rule, things were really dangerous. After not saluting Hitler at an event, the secret police were after her. And so what do you do? You leave the country. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no, she seriously ended up on, like, their top hit list for those Really? Yeah. Because she didn't... Well, I mean, she kind of contributes some other things. So she leaves the country, goes to Prague, uh, which at the time, you know, still a bit of a democratic haven. And it was there that Lisa met her husband, Hans Fritko, a very outspoken critic and a journalist. And so together, all their anti-fascist efforts, it that's what put them on the Nazis' hit list. 
Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they were they were not passive about what was going on at all. So, I mean, as a result, Lisa and Hans, I mean, they move around a lot fleeing the Nazis. They go from Czechoslovakia to Austria, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and then they do settle in France. And it was while Hans and Lisa were in France that World War II broke out. Mm. And this is round two of Lisa saying, screw that. Right. So May of 1940 comes around, Lisa's 31, and Germany invades the North of France. Like, what do you do? Is she in the North of France? She's not quite. They're in Paris. But, I mean, she's there, her husband, her parents are in Paris, and with Germany's annexation of Austria, and that's where she was born under the empire rule, Lisa officially became an enemy alien. Mm. Definitely not the fun type of alien. Instead, the Nazis will 100% kill you type of alien. And France's government bitched out. Prime Minister at the time was like, guys, let's fight the Nazis. Fucking Parliament voted him out, and he was replaced by a World War I war hero. Mm. Yeah. And of course, they don't want to get into that. No. So this new prime minister, him and his government, worked with the Nazis. No. I mean, yeah, that makes sense because... I mean, for me, I knew the, like, grand strokes of it, but I didn't know the, the finer points. And the legitimacy of the government has since been contested, but, I mean, still. It took over 50 years for a French president to acknowledge, like, the role France played in World War II and the Holocaust, and that was in 1995. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. We're gonna bury shit under the rug. A little suppressed. Yeah. Yeah. So back in 1940, the Nazis are advancing further and further into France. And the government was complicit in the demands from the fascists. And they were rounding up alien enemies like Lisa. Did they ever round her up? They did, yeah. You know, France started rounding people up. um, And the Nazis, being the bastards they are, they knew it'd be easier for the French to comply if they weren't going after fellow Frenchmen at first. Mm, yeah. So it, it started with non-French enemies, immigrants, Jews, intellectuals, journalists, and Lisa and Hans both got caught up in these roundups. And I, to be clear, so these roundups, they they started as prison camps. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was shitty, but we're not talking, you know, what we think of as immediate concentration camps. So like ICE. You know, like I said, there's a lot of really scary similarities with with what's been going on and what happened then so yeah these things they were prison camps i mean germany they were heading the whole mass murder thing so I, this is how lisa ended up by the french spanish border after escaping from one such prison camp which i mean by today's standards that's a an eight-hour drive southwest from paris and i kind of oddly think it helped her out later on which is like a weird thing to say about being thrown in a train compartment <laughs> for days on it and the windows were blocked out and everything prior to that they had been held in an auditorium where there was like disgusting conditions all the women had been rounded up it's it's like it's frightening but leading up to her imprisonment and the separation from hands and lisa's escape with about 60 other women from that prison camp in Gers in south of France, um, and then hiding after it was really amazing to read in one of her memoirs just like one, the communication network that was among these unwanted and undesirable people. And two, like the help of the French people. Mm-hmm. Like their government was screwing these people over. But it was just, it was really amazing to hear just all these different people from all these different towns that would take them into their homes and hide them and help move them forward and pass on notes so people could figure out like, where's my family? Where's my husband? Where are my children? Where are my parents? Yeah. 
like super brave individuals. Yeah. How yeah. do I get out of here? How do I move forward? What do I do? You know, do you flee the country? Do you go into hiding? Like, I, I just, I can't imagine being in that situation. And I mean, like I said, so the French government, they were complicit in the Holocaust, but I mean, that didn't mean that all of France was. And that resistance, that goodwill, I mean, that's what got Lisa and Hans reunited in a small coastal town, you know, on the Mediterranean Sea. Like, reading some of that, I was like, oh my god, what if I'm separated from Elena? What if I'm separated from my partner? Like, we have to have a secret network. Like, now, where do we go? Where do we rendezvous? What's the code word? Like, like I feel crazy thinking about this thing, or these things, but... There are things to think about. Yeah, at the same time, you're like, uh, you know, there's something in my gut giving me the heebie-jeebies, and it's not unwarranted, unfortunately. It's got orange skin and a toupee. Ugh. Ugh. So, yeah, everyone's trying to figure out, like, what the hell to do. And with the, the outbreak of World War II, it was a mad dash to get the fuck out. And to do so, you had to have your papers in order. And that was an absolute nightmare. Like, you had to have exit paperwork just to get out of France. But if you were considered a stateless person, then you couldn't have a passport. But then you had to have a visa. But then you had to prove that you could get a visa from somewhere else. And then you had to prove you had the money to have passage to go to another country. It was just, it was a hot mess. So, like, on top of trying to get these papers, then it was a matter of how to get out. And, like, as screwed up as it sounds, like, being trained to the south of France gave Lisa like a geographic advantage and it wasn't long before lisa and hans were introduced to a socialist mayor who wanted to help and his help came in the form of showing them where to cross the border from france into spain and how to smuggle other people out of france too that's pretty cool yeah so because they were so far down by the france spain border it wasn't that hard you know, to hitchhike and to walk from town to town um, to get to the coast, to get to a border town. Right. Which, I mean, that's like a big deal. And again, that, in the help of the French people, like this mayor who was like, let me hook you guys up. I'll show you what to do. <laughs> like they couldn't have done it without this network right. of support. Without this guy, yeah. And he was just one person who played a role. There were so many people who really helped things along. And one thing, one organization that really helped things along was this private American group, the Emergency Rescue Committee. And they met with a key figure in that organization who had kind of caught wind of what Lisa was doing. And he was like, hey, I know you guys are great at outrunning the Nazis because at this point they'd been doing it for years. I know that you know about that mountain boarding that mountain crossing into Spain, will you put off leaving France in order to help smuggle other people out? Rescue Rangers, Chippendale. Rescue Rangers. I'd I'd watch that crossover. That would be pretty wild. (laughs) Chippendale fight the Nazis. That's pretty great. Chippendale against fascism. (laughs) Sorry, continue. Yeah, so that was, like, a really big ask. And even crazier, Lisa and Hans, they said, yeah, we'll do it. Nice. Yeah, this is where artists come into play. Now, naturally, anyone anti-Hitler was really trying to haul up butt to get out. I mean, of which artists, they were a targeted population by the Nazis. When Hitler kind of started his rise to power, Paris, which up to this point was the cultural hub of the world, that's where you got a lot of artists. So that's where a lot of people migrated to because they're like, well, you know, we'll have, we'll be safe here. They weren't safe They there. weren't, unfortunately. And, you know, for artists, like Hitler and his higher ups, they had a very particular view on what was good German art and what that should be. And in order to propagate their ideology, departments were created to target specific 
media and insure it as a propaganda tool. And that included fine art. So they put together a a department of fine art and these very specific measures were created that like actively prohibited, quote, atonal Jewish music, the blues. Uh, They prohibited really top art movements at the time like Dada and Cubism and Surrealism. Jesus. Yeah, they went after everyone. And this department of culture, kind of weird. So to really highlight just how terrible all this art was, they organized an art show called Degenerate Art. And that showcased the type of art that the Nazis hated the most. Wait, the Nazis did that? So they put together a a show highlighting and praising all the artwork that idealized their Aryan, you know, national views, right? Mm -hmm. And then they put together the show, Degenerate Art, that showcased the complete opposite of that. That's okay. Weird, right? Yeah. I mean, well, like, not for the fascists, because that's how they slandered the names of the artists included. Like, they actively um. displayed the show poorly. They must hung art. They crammed it on walls. You know, they graffitied next to the art. They hired actors to kind of mill about and criticize the works. Oh, my God. Like, they wanted to completely slander it in the public eye, because that would give them validation for what they were doing. Oh, my God. Like, evil geniuses. So, perversely, the show was massively attended. I mean, it was touring around Germany. The viewers, they were a mix of, like, Hitler supporters. And then there were those who really valued the art and realized that this was most likely their last time they would ever see it. Oh, no. One thing that's even more messed up was that the Nazi regime pulled all this artwork out of their museum collections from across the nation, threw it all together. And while they were completely slandering the work, they realized that there were certain artworks that would sell really well on an international market, and they sold them to fund their own regime. Oh, no. Yeah. So even while they're like, this is terrible, at the same time, they're like, well, we can make money off of it. That's crazy. There are still lingering impacts of artwork, artworks that were stolen during this time and then sold by the Nazis and other people who benefited from it to institutions and private collectors. And so, like, now you've got the Modern Museum of Art who's put out shows and be like, hey, there is a chance some of our artwork might have been stolen by Nazis. If that's the case, someone please let us know because they can only track the records so far. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other buttload of issues, but there's there's so much art lost during this time. I mean, actively destroyed, but then also resold on the market into private hands. And like never to be seen again. Exactly. That's a whole different buttload stuff. So yeah, artists, they are doing everything they can to leave. I mean, not all, some complied, but for those working in any non-traditional style, you wanted to get out. And these artists fleeing in the late 1930s and 40s A good many did make their way to America, and it's at that point where Paris is no longer the artistic center of the world, and New York City is what replaces it instead. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how that transition occurred. I did not know that. Yeah. I mean, it, it. yeah. So we've got these big, important names like modern pain, painter Mondrian, which we've mentioned a few times, and a pioneer in surrealism, Max Ernst. They were leaving. I mean, the latter, Max him and countless other artists and intellectuals, they intersect with Lisa. So over seven months, week after week, trip after trip, Lisa and Hans would take fellow refugees over the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain towards safety. Spain at this time was neutral. So if you're in Spain, you still weren't out of hot water yet, but you were a step closer. Oh, well, you're a step further away from the Nazis. 
Right. And they, they'd work in small groups. They'd leave the village early in the morning before light. They would blend in with local uh, vineyard vineyard workers. Nothing could be taken along to attract attention. You know, you can't be lugging a big uh, suitcase behind you. And luckily, the mayor, he would make arrangements for the luggage to go on ahead. Oh, that's so cool. It's this whole network. Like, at one point, they run into a smuggler in the mountains while they're coming back. And um, he happens to be a uh, train engineer so for the people they do get that can't physically make the hike over the mountains at the shortest it's a three-hour hike at the longest it Mm -hmm. was 10 hours their connections with this train operator they would be able to sneak people through a tunnel sometimes oh my gosh so it's this whole network and they just they met him and you just you have to go with your gut you're like do we trust him or not is he going to screw us over like is he actually part of the resistance or not it gives me anxiety i'd be like i don't know if i could there's no way i could do what they did it takes a lot, like a lot of courage and a lot of like effort. That I just, I at this point, I can't say that I would have. So again, she's a badass. So yeah, the luggage would go ahead. They would take these people over the mountains. It'd be, you know, a, a difficult hike. But, you know, with the connections to the private American Rescue Committee, a good many of the people they sent across were artists because they were, you know, kind of on the top hit list for who the Nazis were looking to take out. Right. And... Given their line of work, knowing less is more, they'd make multiple trips every week, and Lisa and Hans, they aided hundreds of people. It's it's estimated about 2,000. Oh my god. Yeah, over seven months. So while it's hard to say what specific artists came through, it, it's again a situation where you, you kind of don't want to know who you're dealing with. As right. long as they've been vouched for, you're getting them out and you're getting them over and you're moving on to the next group. Right. And together the, with the guy who is leading this private American rescue committee, they help some really big names. So uh, Marcel Duchamp, he submitted a urinal in our art show with his name on it that really pissed off the <laughs> art world. That's, that's what he's most well known for. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you not familiar with that? I am. I am. Yeah, he wrote, like, our mutt on it. Pissed off so many people. (laughs) Uh, So they helped that guy, got him to safety. Mm -hmm. A Nobel Peace Prize winning scientist, Otto Meyerhoff. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I don't know who he was, but he won a Nobel Prize in medicine. And then the founder of surrealism, Andre Breton. They helped escape from the Nazis. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, he's the guy that, because of his writings, completely sparked the whole surrealism movement. Oh, man. So after seven months of helping people get out of France, I mean, the the time did come in 1941 for Lisa and Hans to leave, too. Suddenly, after relative stability in that southern coastal village, they were back to, you know, moving around while waiting to acquire the proper paperwork and able to leave. And with their connections, they were able to make their way out to Havana, Cuba in 1941. Yeah, I mean, at this point, Lisa, she's 36. This is what she's doing in her late 20s, early 30s. That's where everyone fled, right? I know. I mean, this is when she's she's bribing government officials with salami to get her exit <laughs> paperwork. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I, that would be me. I would do that. All right, no, no, no. Do you want this cured meat? You should eat this cured meat. But first papers i know first i need you to sign and notarize this and gave me that uh that ray seal right there um yeah it was a (laughs) ambassador for panama and word on the street was that he would only take salami and he looked like he only took salami (laughs) and she asked as such when she was there with her husband 
and he was processing their paperwork and her husband kicked her so hard under the table. (laughs) But the Panaman official, he got really excited because for about 20 minutes, he told her all about the different types of salami, how it's cured, how it's smoked, never beef salami. Wow. They got that paperwork and they got out of the country. They got out of the continent. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is so special. I love it. Salami saved her life. <laughs> it helped. It was just one thing that helped. But I mean, that's crazy, right? Like, do you ever think you'd be 31 years old in front of a fat man trying to bribe him with salami so you can flee <laughs> from the Nazis who are trying to kill you? Like, you know, those moments you're like, how did I get here? <laughs> I've been wearing the same dress for three months now. <laughs> Yeah. Bit of a doozy. Um, I mean, I've had those moments, but not quite as severe. No. (laughs) No. God, no. (laughs) Not at all. It's one of those moments I I really hope I don't have to have. And uh, I mean, like, it wasn't easy. So yeah, Lisa and Hans, they made it to Cuba. And yeah, they're 100% guaranteed to not die from the Nazi regime. But meanwhile, her parents are still in Paris. Her family oh, still no. occupied land. Oh, no. Yeah. And that was a really hard thing for her when they were arranging their paperwork to leave is figuring out how to make sure her parents could get out too. Right. And by then, she did have a brother. He was already in America. He was able to get out with his family. Good. Yeah. And it wasn't until 1944 that they got word from a Jewish American newspaper, um, an advert that had been posted, that her parents were alive and they were looking for their children in Cuba and America. Oh, Such a relief. Like, with their connections that they had made, they were able to protect her parents and keep them safe. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now they were able to relocate from Cuba to America to be with family. And Lisa, she lived over 30 years in Chicago. And oh, wow. It, yeah, it, it wasn't until the early 90s when she published her two memoirs about her life in Nazi Germany that she really gained international attention for the work she did in her 20s and 30s. What a brave woman. I know. And, you know, she just got to America and settled down. I was like, all right, I can kind of, you know, be normal now. And there was one moment her young niece asked her about her experience in World War II. And Lisa was like flat up kind of gave her a warning. And she said, quote, inhumanity is typical of fascism, not characteristic of a nation. One would so like to believe that the character of the German people was responsible. But then one could also believe that it could never happen here. Those who so believe have not learned anything. Oh, yeah. shit. Yeah, especially with what's going on now. Like, way to be a little heavy, but I mean, it's true. Now, in 2005, Lisa passed away at the age of 95. And yeah, while she's not an artist, the actions that she took against the Nazis, risking her own life to save others, saved countless artists. And for me, that makes her a complete badass that we should have covered on the podcast. And that's why I'm doing it. Oh, absolutely. Right here. Yeah. Um, yeah. We we welcome all badass women. There's a lot, thankfully. There's so many that yeah. I've like, like lawyers and businesswomen that I've like come across. And I'm like, oh, you're so interesting. But I, there's nothing that you've done that I can possibly relate back to what we cover within the arts and sciences. No, but sometimes, I mean, it is our podcast. We could do whatever the hell we want. We could. We could. We could totally branch out if we wanted. Um, but yeah, so for Lisa in her, in her first book, she wrote about the situation in 1930s France, you know, just saying how people fall into a trap and just, they were so powerless. And it was a question of what are they going to do to me? And especially when she was in that prison camp down in the South of France, she thought to herself, like, people need to be asking, what can I do to get out of this situation? And 
that determination for her to like keep going forward and to focus on you know have an objective and to move forward i mean that's what got her out that's what got her through and that's what got her saving lives of hundreds of people what a queen that's right that's why she's here with us yeah so that's why i covered her for my favorite feminists well that was a good ride thank you a little different a little different yeah yeah so as always if you guys have made it this far you're really awesome you guys really are we super appreciate it and i'm not fibbing because as you've learned today i'm a terrible liar you would hear it in my voice (laughs) you'd be like that megan is lying i think she just told a fib it gets like like the voice gets higher and you like stumble a little bit i don't i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) i love our listeners i think they're the best oh hey (laughs) (laughs) no you guys are really awesome Uh, All right, so if people are interested in learning more and seeing some of the work that we've covered, uh, where can they go to check out the podcast? So you can find our show notes at myfavoritefeminist.com. We have a Facebook and Instagram under My Favorite Feminist. We finally got a Twitter. That's all me, Lana. Wait, what? That's all me, Lana. That's all me. So Good luck. Tweet tweet at me. Let me know how you feel. Uh, You can find us. At M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. We should pop up. And you can tweet at us. You can also listen to us at Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And if you're listening on iTunes, please rate, subscribe, all of that good stuff. And let us know, either Twitter, Facebook, whatever, on iTunes. If things get a little more intense over here in America, what country would you flee to? Okay, logistically, Canada, right? But also... As we know, my Espanol is muy mal. We would end up in Colombia, you know that. You're right. For safety's sake, if I could get off of this continent, I'd take it. Yeah, we would end up in Colombia. No questions asked. Oh, man, I would so risk the food poisoning from strained empanadas... I'd do it. I'd do it again. I look forward to doing it again. My little gringo gut can't handle it, but I'm going to eat it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, if you guys have made it this far, you're really awesome. And until next time, we'll see you then. Bye.